Sass Backwards is sponsored by Austin Lawrence Group, specializing in demand gen for SaaS. It sure is noisy. I deleted 100 emails from vendors just this morning. Your buyer has gotten better at ignoring you, and you're going to need a big idea if you want to cut through all that clutter. Austin Lawrence is just the right agency to help you find it. So if your campaigns are falling on deaf eyeballs, let's talk. Visit austinlawrence.com today and let's build something bigger. Welcome to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, where we reverse engineer the success of fast-growing SaaS firms and explore strategies CMOs and CEOs are using to drive their businesses forward. Welcome to SaaS Backwards, a podcast that helps SaaS CMOs and CEOs to accelerate growth and enhance profitability. Our guest today is MJ Peters, Vice President of Marketing at Colab Software, a SaaS that helps engineers work better together. Hey, MJ, before we get started, please tell us a little bit about yourself and the company. First of all, I have to compliment you. You have a great podcast voice. Maybe me, not so much, but my name is MJ Peters. I am VP Marketing at Colab. Before working at Colab, I worked at Refine Labs, which is an agency that works primarily with Series B, C, and D venture-funded SaaS companies. And then before that, I spent about six years in product and marketing leadership roles in Halma, which is a European equivalent of a Fortune 100 company, a FTSE 100 company based out of the UK. Well, there's, there's a couple of things I want to go through right there. First of all, I haven't yet on the podcast been told I have a face for radio, but thank you very much. And I think we should give a shout out to Chris Walker at Refine Labs, right? Because boy, is he just hitting it every time. He does a great job and I love his content. So we'll give him a shout out. Yeah, I met Chris when I was 22 years old. And I remember thinking even back then, wow, this is the smartest guy in the room. And it turns out I was right. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I think it's worth a shout out. And listeners here should seek out his content because there's a lot of value there. Talking a little bit about Colab, before we get too deep into the topics we agreed, maybe you could sort of tell us about the company, what it does, and sort of how you found them when you joined. Yeah, so Colab makes software primarily for mechanical engineering teams working on mechanically complex products. There is a big challenge in that space around giving people feedback and reviews on that engineering work that they would typically perform in a computer-aided design software. So, you know, they're making a 3D model. This is something they're eventually going to build on the production floor, but lots of engineers need to collaborate and give each other feedback before locking that design in. Unfortunately, where the design happens, it's all on a desktop of a computer. And so we don't get all the cloud-based collaboration that we have in like software engineering or graphic design. And so Colab is trying to bridge that gap for mechanical engineering teams. I found the company because I was networked in with the CEO and our content marketer on LinkedIn. But for me, it was a sweet spot where I get to leverage my background in industrial and manufacturing, as well as all the experience I gained in B2B SaaS working at Refine Labs. That's great. And so uh, what was the situation when you joined them? Sort of what were your diagnostics as a marketing person when you came in the door? 
Colab raised a Series A round in November. So the company is really transitioning from like just having found product market fit into that scale up phase that you kind of shift into after you've found product market fit. So there were really two things to focus on from a marketing perspective. The first is product marketing. And I use the term product marketing quite liberally. So this is positioning its messaging. In our case, it is category creation, not in everyone's case, but in our case, it's category creation. And then there's also, of course, demand gen. So to put it succinctly, how does marketing start putting points on the board? So those were my two main things I came in and focused on when I started about four and a half months ago. So it's still pretty fresh. That's awesome. You mentioned that you had to formalize the lead generation function there. Can you talk a little bit about what you found between lead generation and demand gen, kind of where this company was? and Yeah, so Colab is definitely committed to building demand generation and not necessarily doing what Chris Walker would tell you to not do, which is build lead generation first and then get in a situation where you have to like pivot your whole marketing engine into demand generation. Colab has the advantage of we're quite small still. So we're just going to build a demand gen first marketing model from the start. And really what that means is the two things that marketing is measuring are SQLs and SAOs, as opposed to anything farther up the funnel, like an MQL or content download or something of that nature. So when it comes to starting to put those foundational pieces in place for a demand gen program, really what had to happen was closing the execution gap between the plan and what the company at a high level wanted to get out into the marketplace from a content, from a messaging perspective, and what the marketing team was working on every day. And that can be surprisingly hard to do, right? You got to connect the dots all the way from strategy down to execution. So that's really where I've been focused in terms of demand gen, as well as, of course, putting all the systems in place to be able to measure and track success. So that's interesting. In a conversation I had earlier today, a person in a similar role to yours was saying that her CRM was not helpful in tracking these demand gen KPIs. How are you guys doing that? I think our CRM, or in our case, our MAP, our marketing automation platform, is hugely helpful in tracking demand gen KPIs, but you do have to set it up right. And so I actually only recently started getting very useful data from our CRM because I had to put some time in to set it up correctly and then map it over to our CRM Salesforce and make sure that the two-way data sync was giving us good, clean data. On occasion, you do have to work with the sales team because some of the data points that you're going to want to track if you are a revenue-oriented marketer need to be like manually input by the sales team. So that's not just sales data anymore. It becomes marketing data as well. So that's one place where there might be a gap driving. My CRM isn't helpful for me. And then I think the last issue is just sometimes you don't have enough data in there for it to be very useful, which is kind of what was happening with us, right? Until you're getting at least 10, 15 SQLs at a minimum every month and like your data set has four data points in it. So how useful is that really? Sure. What is the marketing automation in place with you guys? HubSpot. That is awesome. So the HubSpot, Salesforce integration is working and you're able to get the data back to HubSpot to tell you what you need to know. Yeah. Interestingly, HubSpot feeds useful data into Salesforce too. Before we were on Pardot and I had never really used Pardot, so I didn't really give it a chance to be fair, but we didn't really have like that tight connection between marketing and sales where you have the history of what was the source that the contact came from when they converted, where did they say that they found you? So that's just that self-reported attribution. How did you hear about us field? What are all the pages that they looked at on the website. And then Salesforce will eventually take over when that becomes an opportunity. But there's a lot of rich contact data that tends to live in the MAP and not the CRM. And we really weren't gathering that. So I think it's equally important to set up your MAP and your CRM correctly from the beginning. Makes a lot of sense. 
Let's talk a little bit about category creation here. So I guess people don't have solution awareness, right? They don't know that there's something out there for them. Is that what you've found? Yeah. So there's certainly problem awareness. So I talked a little bit about how engineers, they're designing in tools that live on their desktop. And so you don't get the benefit of collaborating. So the way they feel that is they're, you know, up late at night, trying to take screenshots of models and drop it into PowerPoints. And then they're getting comments back and forth on PowerPoints. And then you lose track of the revisions, blah, blah, blah. So there's certainly problem awareness, but lots of people have tried to solve this problem in lots of different ways and nothing has really stuck. So we're hoping to create the category that becomes a more permanent solution. And so we're, I guess, integrating with tools they already use to give them that collaboration overlay. Is that a good way to say it? Yeah. So they use computer-aided design as what I would call their system of execution. That's where they're doing the work. And then they're using product lifecycle management as their system of record. So think of that as like the Salesforce of a manufacturing company, where like that's the source of truth that your quality engineering supply chain and manufacturing teams are all going to be working off of. But then what is your system of engagement where you're actually collaborating and giving feedback on the work that was done in that system of execution? That's where like the vacuum is in this marketplace. So does that sort of triumvirate make sense to the engineering managers, I guess, who would be prospects for you? That is my job to make that make sense. <laughs> Fair enough. And when we talked, you said that messaging was a big part of what you saw was necessary here. And you gave me your model, your sort of three-tiered model. Want to walk us through that and the messaging that was missing at CoLab? Sure. Yeah. So we use a very basic messaging pyramid. So at the top of the pyramid, you have your brand messaging, you have messaging about your category. Basically, this is why the company exists and the big shift in the world that you're describing that bred the need for your company to start and grow. In the middle of the pyramid, you will have uh, functional and emotional benefits. So this is like the what's in it for me, for the person at the operational level that's going to buy your product. And oftentimes this is like where you get into the meat and potatoes of what's the ROI, which is commonly a question that people ask when they don't understand what your product is supposed to do. And then at the bottom of the pyramid, you have features, attributes, things about the product. And when I came to Collab, I kind of noticed that there wasn't a ton of messaging that was living in that middle part of the pyramid, in particular, because we needed another round of product marketing research to happen where we really dug deep into the customer's specific business processes. So a lot of times functional benefits map directly to specific business processes and if you as a marketer don't have a deep understanding of your customer and their business processes, it's hard to create functional and emotional benefit messaging that resonates. And what you'll see as a symptom in a lot of cases when that is going on is teams, sales teams, marketing teams, comms teams jumping directly from that top of the pyramid, like brand category creation messaging, right down to the features and attributes messaging at the bottom of the pyramid. And that leaves like a gap for the customer where they feel confused and it will often show up as what's the ROI. Yeah, I want to go right at that because ROI is often a key kind of lead gen tool, right? You'll get the Forrester total economic impact report that people pay north of six figures to get generated as a lead generation tool ultimately. So I just want to understand, you feel like if people jump right to what's the ROI, they're not necessarily understanding what's really in it for them? 
Yeah, I do think what's the ROI is like a question that prospects sometimes ask in order to try to get you to leave them alone. (laughs) I think they think to themselves, I'm going to put this person on the spot. They're not going to have a good answer to this what's the ROI question. And then they will realize that I'm not a good fit for this product. So I think that's where that question comes from a lot of the time, especially when it comes up early in the sales process. If it comes up late in the sales process, then usually it comes in the form of the prospect asking you to help them prove the ROI. That's a different form of that question. Like I think the question you have to ask yourself if you're in a sales process is this person asking me what's the ROI because they want to partner with me or because they want to get me to leave them alone. So that's a really nice insight for folks. And I think we've all experienced that, but maybe we haven't heard it said as clearly that it's indicative that as marketers, we haven't dug in enough, right? Yeah, it's, it's especially critical in a market like the one I'm in, but in a market like if you're marketing to the finance team or you're marketing to like developers, right? Where you as a marketer, do not do their job or a job that is immediately adjacent to their job, you will often lack an understanding of what their job even entails day to day. If you're a marketer marketing to other marketers or to salespeople, you kind of have an inherent understanding of like what they're doing every day. So if you're not in that situation, then you do have to be a little bit more diligent about your research. So I think there's a corollary maybe here also that if you have some good understanding of the people who will be using your product, and what their difficulties and frustrations, what their aspirations for frustrations are, then you can message things to them that are work effectiveness benefits as opposed to just cost saving. Definitely. And I think coming back to that whole what's the ROI conversation, effectiveness tends to be a lot easier to build an ROI around than efficiency because efficiency always has a ceiling, right? You can only make something 20, 30, 40% more efficient, but you can make something 100, 200, 300% more effective. Sure. Makes a lot of sense. Also, it can be just more enjoyable to do the job, right? In a fully remote work environment, which so many of us find ourselves in now, finding new ways to be connected. I think it's maybe a soft benefit, but it's really valuable. Yeah. We get people talking about that a lot. I think the world of building mechanical products and mechanical engineering has been slower to shift remote than other parts of the workforce, but people are aware of it. It feels like it's coming. People think it's really important to retain talent by offering that as an option. And people are concerned about, hey, how are we going to adjust to this new way of working? Awesome. So let's move on. We were talking in our prep session about how you see yourself kind of moving the go-to-market and how you're going to get in front of the customer that you think will matter to you. And could you talk a little bit about your choices in media and how you're reaching out to potential customers? Yeah, so I think it's important if you have a small marketing team to not try to go after too many channels at once. So that's a principle that I'm trying to follow here at the beginning. The channels I'm choosing now are not to say that other channels are not worth pursuing. It's just that we've got to focus on just a few things and get them right and expand other things as the marketing team grows bigger. So early on, we have some SEO, some paid search, a lot of LinkedIn, and then we have a sales development team, and then we have our CEO's organic LinkedIn. And I would say that those are really our five primary channels that we're running right now. And when you say advertising on LinkedIn, what does that look like? And what are your expectations in terms of outcomes there? Yeah, so we run a lot of what I call in-feed storytelling. So this is a principle my friend Chris Walker talks about quite a bit. So can you share that messaging? Can you share that perspective? Can you tell a complete story inside the feed without somebody having to click to go to a website? And the reason that you do that is because the click-through rate on LinkedIn is about half a percent, which means that if you're not marketing at all in the feed, then you're missing the opportunity to market to 99.5% of people. So it's a challenging thing to do. You have to take static 
image or a little carousel and really try to tell the story of quite a complex product. And so as a result of that, we're iterating very fast on creatives. We are kind of starting with our product marketing messaging, that middle of the pyramid messaging that we worked on right away when I came in that was based on customer research. And then we translate that into a bunch of different variations of copy, different variations of visuals. And then we'll usually run like a thematic campaign tied back to, again, a business process. We'll do this for like two weeks at a time. Primarily, we're looking at click-through rate as the leading indicator. And then we will look at inbound SQLs, inbound SAOs, the lagging indicator. And right now, the focus is really on fast experimentation because we need to figure out which messages resonate best with the market, which use cases get people interested as opposed to other use cases where maybe the interest is not that high. Right now, we have like a looming fear of a recession. And so, for example, one of the use cases that seems to be working well for us is cost reduction. So how can you design cost out of your products? That's a good hook right now. So we're doing a lot of testing. And once we get the lagging indicators around SAOs and cost per SAO in a place where we feel confident, then that is when we will scale up spend on that channel. And what do those creative units look like? Just so in case people don't know, I think it's fair to try and share that a little bit. Yeah, it's a square image. Static image is probably our biggest type of creative that we do. Usually it has like five or six words in the image itself. That's really as much text as you want to use. And then sometimes you can do a visual from the product, or sometimes you do a little bit more of an abstract visual. So something we've done recently, obviously our product is around collaboration and making it more effective and fast and streamlined. So the alternative being like emailing endlessly back and forth. So we kind of use the imagery that you might see in like a cluttered email box of people going back and forth on the same topic again and again and again, like same subject line again and again and again. We kind of use that as like a background image to our headline. And that's been working pretty well for us. So really, I think what I've learned the most over the last eight weeks of this rapid experimentation is like the visual, if you can get it right, unlocks a lot of results. I was pretty fixated on the copy in that ad at the beginning and copy matters. But if you can be creative with the visual, it unlocks another level of performance. And you mentioned that you are using some paid search. Is this a category with active search? I wouldn't say it's a category with active search. So our paid search strategy is branded. And then we do a little bit of what I would call like redirecting demand onto our product. So while nobody is actively searching for our category, which is design engagement system yet, that is a goal of mine to create more search traffic for that term. There are people searching for something that would imply that they have the problem we can solve or that they're looking for an alternative to their current tool set because they are finding that their current tool set has a specific gap. So it'll be like PLM, which is a tool set that they have, which we're not aiming to replace collaboration, right? So clearly they like their tool set, but they're having a collaboration gap. And so if we can kind of redirect the demand for, I don't know what I'm looking for, but it's something around PLM and collaboration onto our product and educate them around design engagement system. That's kind of how we're trying to use paid search. Makes sense. I think it was an unusual situation that you came into, kind of to back up a little bit, that the leadership in the organization understood demand generation. How did they come about that understanding? and What were they thinking? They follow Refine Labs and Chris Walker on LinkedIn. So that had a big influence on their thinking. And then we have a really smart guy on our board who works at one of the VCs that led the last round. And he comes from very much that fundamental like product marketing, positioning, messaging background. So between the way kind of Chris Walker talks about demand gen and how being too quantitative can really lead you astray. And our advisor on the board who really values customer research, positioning, messaging, getting all of that right. Right. That's kind of how the worldview of marketing at Colab was shaped. And it was a big reason that I was really excited to join the team. 
I think it's really interesting. And you know, a fair number of the people we speak with are either new in the job or are about to go on the hunt. And I think there's some opportunity maybe for folks as they're looking for their next career move to make sure they ask those kind of questions. Too many marketing leaders we know get stuck right on the hamster wheel of lead generation. It's like they come in and it's 11 fingers needed to plug the dike, you know? And I just wonder how common that's going to be that people have this demand gen mindset in leadership. Honestly, I haven't heard it too often. I don't know what your experience is with that. Yeah, I think I am very fortunate to have found a company that was already totally on board with the demand gen mindset. I think there's another category of companies out there that don't know really what they're looking for, but they're open-minded. And so I think the right marketing leader could also come into a company like that, that's open-minded and influence that team to adopt more of the demand gen focus. So I think understanding where are you at, right? Do you have a company that's all about lead gen? Do you have a company that's not quite sure or open-minded? Or do you have a company that's demand gen focused? And know that if you're not about lead gen, you should avoid a lead gen focused company. If you are going into a company that's open-minded, just know that you're going to have to influence people and it will probably slow you down and just set expectations appropriately there. But I do think it's quite possible to make a huge impact at one of those companies that's kind of in the middle. And I think you touched on this early in the conversation about whether or not you entertain lead generation while you're trying to build your demand gen world. Could you just sort of expand on that? Because it's a theme that comes up pretty frequently for us. Yeah. So I'm in a fortunate position because we're really just building everything for the first time. And so we have the opportunity to build just 100% demand gen from scratch. Not everybody is necessarily in that position. So if you're coming into like a company that has raised series C funding and is already spending $250,000 a month, most of that is on lead gen, then it's a little bit terrifying to say we're going to shut off the 250k a month because you probably are getting some opportunities from that. And so if you can't replace that next month with demand gen, which, you know, it takes some time to build this thing. So you're probably not going to be able to, then it's hard to justify shutting the whole thing off. So the people, the leaders that come into a situation that's more like that really have this delicate balancing act that they have to figure out. Alice DeCourcy at Cognizum has spoken a lot about how she made that shift, but it was a delicate operation that I believe took her many months to achieve. So I think it points to the great opportunity you have if you have a blank canvas like we did at Colab to really build an 100% demand gen focused engine from the beginning. Now, if you are doing that from the beginning, as I said, it takes some time. So you're going to have to endure three, four, five months of pretty light inbound because demand gen happens more slowly than lead gen because you're measuring lagging metrics, not leading metrics. And so you have to have the stomach for that. You have to set expectations appropriately. Yeah, we're not just calling everybody who clicks on an email or downloads a, an ebook a lead, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're just pursuing them very differently. In fact, why don't we talk a little bit about that motion? So if I'm in your target space and I do engage with some of your content, what does my experience look like after that? Because you're not going to send an SDR to call me within five minutes of my download, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we do have SDRs. So they might serendipitously call you within five minutes of you downloading something, but it wasn't because we told them to. What you would probably have happen is you, at this point, if you're an engineering leader, you may have seen something like 10 or 12 different different collab campaigns. Maybe you didn't see all of them. Maybe you only saw some of them. Maybe you clicked on one of them, right? But by the sixth or the seventh campaign, we'd be hoping that you're starting to recognize patterns. Maybe you've thought about this while you're walking your dog. <laughs> Maybe your boss has come up to you and said, hey, our CEO in the recent shareholder meeting said that we need to cut our time to market from 24 
months to 16 months, you got any ideas about how we can do that? And because you've seen our messaging over and over again, you say, you know what, I see a company that's talking a lot about that. Maybe I'll come and reach out to Colab. So by the time they reach out to Colab, they've done like 55, 60% of their buying process. And so what we're seeing quite often is you'll have an inbound meeting booked from somebody who's done a lot of research already. And on their first call with the sales rep, it goes straight to sales accepted opportunity. Whereas with the sales development source lead, sometimes you're having multiple meetings before it's actually accepted into the pipeline because you kind of need to align on what are we doing here? Do we have a shared goal? Do we understand your pain, right? Whereas the inbound person is going to come to you with pain, with a goal, they're going to share it. They're going to be more proactive and that's going to be a high velocity deal. So how long do you think it takes to really get to a cruising altitude on demand gen in this space? What is your estimate? A lot of people will say two sales cycles. Our sales cycle is like five months and it's been about four and a half. And we are starting to see like a little bit of acceleration. So I'm hoping that we can buck the trend and pull it in faster than two sales cycles. But I would say no shorter than one sales cycle to really educate people and start seeing these inbounds that are converting from meeting book to SAO in a single call. I want to move on to one last topic with you, which is how you're structuring your resources. Because I know that you have some in-house resource, but you mentioned it's a small team. So how do you make the decisions on what you're going to outsource and what kind of functions are you outsourcing? So anything that requires close proximity to the customer, I believe needs to be in-house. And anything that relies more heavily on like best practice or technical expertise or competency with the tech stack, I think you can outsource. So for me, product marketing, got to be in-house. Content, I think is a lot better in-house. SEO for that reason, because my approach to SEO is quite content driven. I think it should be in-house, but we are having an agency, for example, run paid media, LinkedIn for us, paid search. We work quite closely with our agency. They do the creative, which I think you could make an argument that should be in-house, but we work hand in hand with them and they do a good job for us. So my team right now has a digital marketing manager who owns the website, SEO marketing ops. We have a content marketer who does all of our writing, including including the SEO writing. And then we have a brand designer. And then I do the product marketing as well as sitting in the VP marketing seat. At some point, we'll probably get a product marketer in here. And then our agency is a small shop that focuses on paid search, paid social, and creative specifically for paid social. Interesting. And was that a change from what they had before? Or did you pick up pieces that they already had? So when I joined, they had the digital marketer in place. He was occupying more of a marketing generalist role, but digital marketing was definitely his strength. So moving him where he could focus more on that role was one of the moves I made early on. Content marketer doing a very similar role as she was doing before. No product marketer on the team. So that's why I became kind of the product marketer. And then I brought the brand designer in before they were kind of splitting a designer between the product design team and the marketing design duties, which is tough from an accountability perspective. They had evaluated a couple agencies, but they weren't actively using anybody. So I brought one in that I know and trust. And was there an adequate budget in place for what you need to achieve or did you need to make a case and negotiate for a budget? There was a pretty adequate budget in place, I will say. And so at the beginning, I had a 12-month budget, right? Here's the budget for the next 12 months. I am not spending in my first three, four months, a monthly rate that would be equal to that annual budget divided by 12. I'm spending below that with the idea being once we prove some things out, you need enough budget to experiment with. But once you prove some things out, then in the back half of the year, you spend at a higher rate because you're spending against programs that you've proven to be effective on a small scale. 
I love that idea. And, and actually, if you get to a point where you're showing good results on less than your prorated spend, you can really turn it on as you know what to do. So yep, exactly. Sounds pretty smart. We should check in with you in about six months and see how things are going. Yes, I hope they're going really well. And I'm sure I'll learn a bunch more things between now and then. Well, MJ, thanks so very much for being on the podcast. If people want to reach out to you with any questions, how can they best connect with you? You can find me on LinkedIn, MJ Peters. And I am also on Twitter with slightly more unfiltered takes. Awesome. Uh, people want to reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's LinkedIn slash in slash Ken Lempit. And if you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast, please do so wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And thanks again, MJ. This is a great episode. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Ken, for having me. Thanks for listening to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, brought to you by Austin Lawrence Group. We're a growth marketing agency that helps SaaS firms reduce churn, accelerate sales, and generate demand. Learn more about us at www.austinlawrence.com. You can email Ken Lempet at kl at austinlawrence.com about any SaaS marketing or customer retention subject. We hope you'll subscribe, and thanks again for listening.